0: Okay. The Book of James, chapter four. The handout it uh, starts at page five. Reading chapter four, verses seven through chapter five, verse six. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and He will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge another? Now, you who say today or tomorrow, let us go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. for What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and your corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers Have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. All right. You may be seated. So page one, i remind you that where we are, if you look at the chiasm there, the structure of it, we are looking at part B prime, so we're getting close to the end, we're coming out of the chiasm, so we're looking at verses, chapter four, verse seven, to chapter five, verse six, the exalted brought low, and the lowly exalted. Remember earlier on in chapter one, verses nine to eleven, there was a focus on the lowly, and how they would be exalted, and how the exalted would be brought low. So we'll look at that as the the conclusion, but those are the parts that correspond to each other in terms of the structure of James. So if we continue on, I want to give you a little bit of context for what we're looking at. Remember, last time, on page 2 here, we we had verse 3 forward. It says, "...you ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures." Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So there's the the idea of a profane affection, giving your affections where they don't belong to the world, and this idea of the antithesis that you cannot be friends with God and with the world. Page 3, the quote continues, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. So remember, desire is not evil in itself. Desire is to want, to will, to to, to value a thing. In fact, the absence of good desires is evil. The absence of good desires is evil. You should desire what is good. And it's a wicked thing to have zero desires. Emptying of the mind, emptying of of the will from choices, emptying of the affections to have no things that you think are beautiful is wrong. It is wicked. The truth is that we are called to highly value some things. In particular, we are called to value the glory of God. We are to value what he has revealed as true. And so what we have is an obligation to not be Stoics, And to not be Buddhists, we are not to empty the mind or the will. We are to fill it with the right things. So we are called to have a zeal, and the Holy Spirit is zealous. And the word that's translated there is also translatable as as jealous. And jealousy is a zeal. It's a zeal for what is yours. And you could have a zeal, a jealousy that's wrongly placed. It could be a a jealousy for something that's not yours. You can be jealous for things that are somebody else's. That's called envy or covetousness. But when we have a jealousy for things that are ours, that is right. A spouse ought to be jealous for their spouse. They ought to be jealous for the affections of their spouse and for the proper maintaining of the holiness of the body of the spouse. We're taught in the second commandment that the Lord is a jealous God. Let's read that. Look at the bottom of page 3. And this is actually what's being referenced here when it says, do you think that the Scripture says in vain... The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. This is what the reference is to. It's not an exact quote. It's a paraphrase. And it's applying it not just to God in terms of the three persons. It's applying it to the particular person of the Holy Spirit. So the second commandment is, You shall not make unto yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. For I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, the jealousy of God here is a jealousy for worship. He wants worship. He wants right worship. He does not want invented worship. If you make it up It is a stench to him. He hates it. He does not want it. If you worship him in the way that he has appointed, the way that he has commanded, that is what he is jealous for. And if you give worship to anything other than God, he is also jealous about that. Because he will not tolerate the worship of anything else in his sight. Now, this jealousy is a jealousy that is so zealous that it takes the punishment to the third and fourth generation of them that hate him. There are multi-generational curses that fall for false worship. Does that mean it's not able to be forgiven? Does that mean that Christ can't pay for false worship? No. But if you have ancestry where there is false worship that you are aware of, Pray for the mercy of God. Pray for the removal of that curse. And so, we look upon that and we realize this is a big deal to God. In addition to that, on the positive side, look at the blessing. The blessing doesn't say, and he shows mercy unto the third and fourth generation of them that love me and keep my commandments. It says, unto thousands of them. What's the them referring to? It's a pronoun, right? Pronouns typically refer back to the last noun we were talking about. If the curse is to the third and fourth generation, what's the blessing to? Thousands of individuals? Did we just change subjects all of a sudden? We're talking about individuals? It's to thousands of generations. This blessing is to thousands of generations. This is lasting work. This is something that is gold and precious stones that will not be burned up proper worship has a lasting effect it causes your life to give a godly heritage and to be useful this is highly practical being concerned about false worship is highly practical and the fact that we would think that it's not practical is because we are so prone to care about the creature more than the creator We tend to minimize false worship and minimize right worship because we want to go to more practical things. Beloved, there are no more practical things than the right worship of the Lord God Almighty. His armies are more numerous than yours. He is the Lord of hosts, and He is jealous. So we are called to a right worship of God. And in that jealousy, we need to think about what that jealousy Pertains to that jealousy pertains to the positive duties. So go to page four the duties that are required in the second commandment. So this is from the larger catechism. I have not included the proof text because I was already at 12 pages and so I cut that out to prevent it from being doubled. I would strongly encourage you to go to reform.org or Puritan's Mind and go take a look at these proof texts. Just go get the larger catechism up on that page. And go look at the proof text here. Anything you doubt, go search the scriptures and see if these things are so. The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping, pure and entire, all such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in His Word. Receiving is, you get them from God's revelation, you believe it. The observing of it is the positive doing And the keeping of it is the guarding it. The preserving it. You do that pure and entire. Pure. You don't add things to it. Entire. You do not fail to do any of the things that God has commanded in his worship. And so, the Westminster Assembly kindly put together for us a list of these things here. Particularly, prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. That would include psalm singing. We rejoice and give thanks in psalm singing. So prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. The reading, preaching, and hearing of the word. So the pray the praying is in the name of Christ. is by the mediation of Christ. And the word of God is used in reading. It's used in preaching. And your hearing, your listening right now to the preached word or earlier on to the red word is an act of worship. And the way you do that rightly, when one person speaks... 1 Corinthians tells us, the rest judge. Judging means that you judge by the Scriptures. You don't judge by your own opinion. You don't think, I like that doctrine. I don't like that doctrine. I like that command. I don't like that command. What you say is, that commandment is in the Scriptures, or that one's not. That doctrine is in the revealed Word of God. That one's not. You search the scriptures to see if these things are so. You judge, not by your own judgment, but you judge by the mind of Christ. And we ought not to go beyond what is written. The sacraments are to be administered and they are to be received. The government of the church and the discipline of the church are part of what the assembly does. And those things are governed by the second commandment. The things that are lawful to be done in the Lord's day. And... We ought to be zealous about the right government of the church. If we care about worship but we don't care about government, we are saying the law word of Christ matters in this area, but it doesn't matter over here. We need to care about the word of Christ in terms of how he has ordered us to order his church. And so doing things decently and in order applies not only to worship but to government. And that order is the order revealed by Christ. The ministry, we are to minister in the way that God has appointed. This is his house. We just read in in Hebrews, for example, about Moses being a faithful servant in the house. We are called now to be faithful servants, and we are sons. We are to be careful to not add any ministries that have not been appointed. And then to maintain that ministry is to provide the weapons of their warfare, to equip them, and to provide with daily bread. Religious fasting and swearing by the name of God, vowing unto him. These are all things that are appointed. And these are not the ordinary acts that occur every single time. They are extraordinary. The, the swearing, the fasting, the vowing, these are things that are, that are special acts. They are, are broken out. Now, sacraments in some way are swearing. Okay? When you take the Lord's Supper, you're swearing again that you believe in Christ, you are proclaiming his death until he comes. And you're also swearing to do what he has commanded when you take the Lord's Supper. It is a covenanting act, it's a renewal of the covenant. But the verbal expression of an oath or a vow is not done all the time, every time we gather. Now, there's also a duty here to disapprove the test and oppose false worship. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of Americans. Let me tell you who disapproves of false worship. Yahweh. We are to detest false worship. Who hates false worship? The Lord Jesus Christ hates false worship. We are to oppose all false worship. The Holy Spirit opposes all false worship. And there will be a reckoning for false worship. Either Christ has already paid for that sin because it was false worship on the part of one of his elect, or... It is false worship that will be paid for by the punishment of God on that individual. God disapproves, detests, and opposes all false worship. And we are commanded to do the same. We are to remove it from any place where we have authority or calling to do so. Your own private life, your household, the extent to which you are a member in a church and you have the power to vote or to bring it up, The ability to bring it up in an appeal, a concern, the raising of an issue. And the monuments of idolatry. What are monuments of idolatry? Any practice, any label, any object that is a reminder, a thing designed for remembrance or use of false worship and idolatry. The tearing down of monuments of idolatry is a good work. And so this is the sort of thing that often gets attacked as sort of ignorant iconoclasm. Iconoclasm is a good thing. The kings that are commended in Israel and Judah are the kings that cut down the high places, that chopped down the bales, that destroyed the Asherahs. That iconoclasm was approved by God. And it is our duty to care So depending upon your place of authority and responsibility, if you have monuments of idolatry in your home, remove them. You have a little Buddha statue that you think is cute that somebody gave it to you? Destroy it. Tear it down. It is not cute. It is disgusting and aberrant. It is an abomination in the sight of God. Destroy it. It is a monument of idolatry. The things that are reminders and markers of it we are to mark our door with the Word. We should have the rule of the Word over our homes. So what are the sins that are forbidden in the second commandment? The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God Himself. So if you devise, you make up, you invent out of your own heart Any religious worship that God hasn't instituted, that is sin. To advise other people to use stuff that God didn't appoint. Sin. Commanding it. Commanding it. Think about this for a second. Imagine for a moment that you have either the duty of being a head of house or you have the duty of being a pastor. And you are obligated to tell people, do this worship. God will be pleased with it. How cautious would you be about commanding it? How sure are you that the worship you would tell them to do is the worship that God says, this is the worship I've appointed, this is pleasing to me. We should be very careful about the worship we do. And the exercise of authority is something that should remind us of the importance of how sure are we that we can prove this. I cannot prove to you that you should sing anything other than the psalms that are inspired by God. And so I do not ask, command, or commend. I cannot prove to you any doctrines except for those that are written in the text of Holy Scripture or can be necessarily shown by good and necessary inference to be drawn therefrom. And so I should not say you must believe this. Those things that are demonstrable those things that can be proven, those are the things that can be commanded. To use those things in worship or to approve those things which are not able to be shown is a wrong use of authority. And if we approve of any religious worship not instituted by God Himself, then we are engaged in an act of idolatry. The tolerating of a false religion The tolerating of a false religion is something that we are also forbidden from doing. It is an American hallmark that we think toleration is a virtue. Toleration is not a virtue. The toleration of wickedness is a righteous soul becoming more and more corrupt and dulled. We are commanded to oppose evil. And when the righteous falter before the wicked... The righteous are like a polluted well or a murky spring who do not fulfill their purpose. The righteous stand and it looks like a symbol of hope. People exult and think, this man, this one, he will oppose the wickedness. He will bring order to the chaos. He will stop it. And when his mouth is stopped, instead of the wicked being stopped, the hearts of the weak melt and their hope is dashed. We are called to oppose wickedness. Opposition to wickedness, not a toleration of false religion, but an opposing of false religion, is our duty. It is sin to make any representation of God, of any, or of all the three persons of the Trinity, you have any images of Jesus, burn them, destroy them. Those are not images of Jesus, those are teachers of lies. The effeminate hand-model, hair-model Jesus you have is an invention of Renaissance homosexuals. It is not the image of Jesus Christ. It's an abomination. Get rid of it. He is not milky white. He is not blonde and blue-eyed. He is not long-haired. There is a commandment to have short hair, and he was no sinner. These images are teachers of lies. And we are commanded to not make images of God. Destroy them. We're not to make outwardly any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever that is a representation of God. It's not a problem making images of creatures, it's making them as representations of God. All worshiping of these images, the worshiping of God in it or by it, that's common, by the way. Look at Exodus with the golden calf. This is Yahweh who brought you out of slavery. You look at what happens with Jeroboam and the institution of the two golden calves. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. It's an attempt to take them and use them to worship God. Everyone, every sophist that ever tries to say, oh yeah, we're not worshiping the idols, we're worshiping the true God through them, they're just representations. That's the example that's given. You think you're so clever? As though God failed to cover his bases? Have you read it at all? Do you care what the scriptures say? This effort to say, I'm not worshipping the image, I'm I'm worshipping God through it. That is what is condemned. Those are the principal examples that are given. Is the true God being worshipped through false means? The making of any representation of feigned deities and all worship of them or service belonging to them If you take a service that belongs to Baal or Asherah or Molech and you then try to use it to serve God. God says, do not look to the nations to see how they worship their gods. It never entered my mind to do the nonsense that they are doing, like passing children through the fire. And so you want to go worship Yahweh by passing your child through the fire? He will not be pleased. He will not be pleased. You do not look to what others are doing. You look to the Word. It's a testimony to the law. If they do not speak according to this, there is no light in them. making of any representation of feigned deities, all worship of them or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices. You have anything you think it's cute, it's a lucky charm? It is a superstitious device. Poorly clover, burn it. Rabbit's foot, burn it. Get rid of it. Destroy it. Tear it down. Chop it down. These things are superstitious devices. Be a Christian. Let the word rule your home. Let the word rule your backpack you got something that's hanging off of it that you think you received in high school that somebody said was cute and they gave it to you. It's a gift from a friend and it's a lucky charm. Destroy it. Honor God more than your friends. If they are real friends, they will understand when you explain it. And if they are not real friends, you will be spared their wicked companionship if they are offended and leave your friendship. Honor God. This brings blessing to the thousandth generation. Corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken up of ourselves, right? So, any source of this, any source of this, did you invent it yourself? Did you receive it by tradition from others? Is it really old? Like, since the fourth century, they've been celebrating this. Wow, that's great. When were the scriptures finished? Was it the fourth century? Or was it the first? And so if you can't find evidence of it in the apostolic tradition, in the scriptures, guess what kind of a tradition is? It's a doctrine of demons, or it's an invention of the wicked hearts of men. I don't care how old it is, if you can't find it in the scriptures. You know what's really old? Baal worship. Pharaoh worship is really old too. Antiquity is no basis for the acceptance of a doctrine or a practice. Human custom. Custom would be a rule if it weren't for the fact that the hearts of men are idle factories and the majority runs to wickedness. Custom is no basis for thinking that a practice is acceptable. Devotion. You see people that are really zealous using something. And so you go, well, their zeal, their zeal commends it. Devotion is not a basis. The prophets of Baal cut themselves with zeal. They cut themselves with a furious zeal. Good intention. Or any other pretense whatsoever. But all these pretenses, if it's not in the law and the prophets, it is not good. God has shown us what is good. His word is sufficient. Can you demonstrate it? Can you show this form of government Can you show this act of authority? Can you show this type of ministry? Can you show this type of worship? Can you show this religious act? Simony, selling off religious things. Sacrilege, taking religious things and making them profane. Neglect, contempt, and hindering and opposing The worship and ordinances which God has appointed. If something is demonstrated, don't neglect it. Don't hate it. Don't stop others from doing it. Do not fight them. Do not resist them. The Lord will resist you. Somebody brings forward something that the Scriptures say, and they're under your authority. Husbands, you have a wife and she brings you something that the Scriptures say we should do this thing? Don't oppose it. Don't hinder it. Don't slow it down. You resist God? He is really good at smashing through resistance. You you resist the devil, he'll flee. You resist God, you will flee. We are called to not oppose in any way the worship and ordinances which God has appointed. So, page 5. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This whole line is about the jealousy of God. And God is jealous for His right worship and He's jealous for His people. And being jealous for His people and being jealous for right worship, those who humble themselves, you know what He does? He gives more gifts. He gives more grace. So when we apply what God commands, He increases our gifting. When we do what we understand, He increases our understanding more. But God resists the proud. And so we get into this section on the rich, on those who are exalted. And the point is, there's this tendency in these Jewish churches to favor the rich and to disfavor the poor. And so we are pushed hard to say we need to be humble and realize that everything we have is a gift and we didn't get it by our own power. So those who seem gifted, those who seem rich, those who seem powerful, it doesn't matter to the law and to the prophets. If this is not what they're saying, who cares? Therefore, submit to God. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Our call to submit to God as the jealous God, we're commanded to obey Him in everything. To acknowledge his superiority in all things. To be lowly and bowed down before him. We should fear him. We should act like it's a big deal if we break his laws. And we should act like it's a big deal if we fail to do what he's commanded. If you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But don't resist God. The command to draw near to God has a promise attached to it We're On page five, point four fifteen, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. So here's how we approach Him. We approach Him by the means He's appointed with faith for His glory as your true good by the mediation of Christ. If you do that, He will bless you. If you do that, He will bless you. Here's what I didn't just say. What I didn't just say is Your justification before the Lord God Almighty depends upon you properly obeying him to a sufficient degree. What I did say was there's a blessing for obedience. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And here's how you approach him. By the means he's appointed, with faith, for his glory is your good, by the mediation of Christ. He will bless you. Page six. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So now, when we draw near to him, he's going to draw near to us. Okay, God's a spirit and he's everywhere, so how does he draw near? What does that mean? Sounds like an analogy or metaphor, some figure of speech. You can give me a better label later. That work of God is a manifesting of himself in a special way. So how does he draw near to us? He draws near to us by giving us gifts of grace. He draws near to us by increasing our sanctification. He draws near to us by causing us to be those who receive more of him. This language of jealousy is associated with marriage, right? This idea of being adulterers. Right? We're, said we're, we're adulterers is what we're called in this text. And so we're said to not do that. We're told to not do that. But instead, we are to be holy unto God. And so the result is you enjoy the relationship more. If somebody ever tells you, that saving faith is a relationship with God, as opposed to the fruit of it, they've made a substantial error. It's another gospel. The benefits of the relationship are not faith. Faith results in the benefits of the relationship. And so when we apply obedience in increasing ways, we find that we enjoy the relationship more and we get blessings of the relationship more. That's what we're taught here. So now we're told... Cleanse our hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the hands are associated with action. The heart is the inward man. And what we are told here is we're told to cleanse our hands and we're told to purify our hearts. These are both sort of cleansing acts. So, the cleansing of the hand for the sinner. We are to rely upon Christ's mediation. We're not doing this of our own righteousness. We are to rely upon the Father's love, which is unchanging. And we are to rely upon the Holy Spirit's power. And we are to look at the second commandment to see how we should approach God, what actions we should take. We are to drop all filth and to stop making our hands weapons of wickedness. We are to pick up the things that should fill our hands, not idleness, not just emptying, sitting around going, I'm not doing bad things. You keep your hands full Of good work. You make your hands instruments of righteousness. The purifying of the heart is similar, but notice the contrast is to double-mindedness, which has been talked about earlier. Double-mindedness is believing truth and believing error. It is doubting truth because you have falsehood in your heart. And so you jump between them. You are inconsistent. You are unstable in it. And so double-mindedness is to be combated... In the same way, you rely upon Christ's mediation, you recognize the unchanging love of the Father, and you recognize the Holy Spirit's power. These are the things by which you can have double-mindedness replaced. And so you look at the first and third commandment for the attitude that you should have toward God. The second commandment tells you the means, and the first commandment teaches us that we should know God and the third commandment teaches us the attitude for approaching God with the things He's appointed. So we purify our hearts by seeking to replace false doctrine with true, true doctrine. We remove the doubts. So the means that we're to focus on are study and meditation, praying for wisdom, asking for advice and counsel from mature believers. But remember, if you receive something as custom, if you receive something as just the word of a man, You're still violating what God has commanded. That's not how you purify your hearts. You don't purify your heart by accepting a custom to replace some other custom you had. You don't purify your hearts by receiving the doctrine of man to replace some other doctrine of man. The purification of the heart is by the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. The truth is the healing word. It cleanses. So you ask mature believers and you search the scriptures to see if what they tell you is so. You have a duty to be skeptical until they prove it or until you prove it. And to be quick to accept proof. I don't mean accept you know bad arguments and go, oh, grab onto that one quick. When there's proof, if you're slow to take it up, that's sin. It's your job to carefully take that in. Now, here's the thing you hear all this, and the general response is always to go, but I am weak and I need time to blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know. We are sinners and we fail so often at so many points. We are called to perfect perpetual obedience and to only believe the truth all the time and and to instantly accept valid arguments from right premises and to immediately reject invalid arguments from false premises. That's what Jesus did. He got it right away. Constant flow of Eurekas. Just always getting illuminated more. That's what heaven will be like. Our slowness of mind is sin indwelling. And we fight that. You know one of the effects of growth and sanctification is you become faster to see truth. You become faster to see truth. The more truth you know, the faster you can reject falsehood. And the faster you can see new truths. There's an acceleration process. That being the case, you might think, you know, maybe I'll get to heaven and then I'll catch up to the guys that have been learning for a couple thousand years, right? You're like you're like, Abraham's only been learning for like, I don't know, four thousand more years than us so far. The asymptotic rate of acceleration of learning. Right? The the degree to which he is so far ahead of us. You get to heaven, you might think, Well, after eternity, maybe I'll maybe I'll catch up. Three billion years from now, he'll still be 4,000 years ahead of you. There is a great joy in getting truth and the rate of acceleration of getting more truth. Life becomes like a highway as opposed to hacking your way through the jungle. As opposed to a machete, you start to have, you know, whatever car you like, whatever I said, you would be like, well, there's a better one. Whatever car you like, on the freeway, going at whatever miles per hour you are willing to risk it. We are to ask more mature believers and search the scriptures to see if they tell you truth. You should consider arguments carefully and show why the argument is bad if you think it's bad, or be able to show why it's good. So often we ask people for advice to give us an answer, it sounds good, and we just kind of move on. Make sure you get why. Make sure you get why. Understand why it solves your problem. If you understand how the answer actually solves your problem and can demonstrate why it's true, you are so much more likely to remember it and to be able to teach others and to teach yourself when you doubt again. Arguments are necessary for double-mindedness to be subdued. So study what makes an argument good or bad. I have some good logic textbooks over there. Happy to give them away. They fly off the shelves. This is a matter of life or death, people. The knowledge of God is eternal life. The knowledge of God is eternal life. Unbelief is death. Do we want God to resist us? If we are proud and do not think we need the knowledge of God, we have other things, we have more practical things, we have other things to work on, if we don't want to study these things, if we don't want to approach God in the way that he's appointed, he will resist us until we recognize that he is God and we are not. So there's a call to lament and warn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We are to fast and pray and ask God to give wisdom to help us to remove the power of sin by His Spirit. And He's already removed the guilt of sin by the blood of Christ, but the power of sin is still there. And so fasting and prayer, those are heavy artillery pieces that are brought in to support the advance of the Word. Use them. You privately have the authority to call a fast for yourself whenever you want, except for the Lord's Day. It's a feast day. And you have the ability to pray and to study. You're called to do morning and evening worship. You're called to have the Sabbath. But you can take extra time. And so if there's something you're trying to figure out, take that opportunity. You got something you're doubting, go fight it. Go chase it down. There's great value in times of serious reflection. And rejoicing is good in its place, but rejoicing is much sweeter when mourning is rightly used as well. When you mourn when there's something to mourn about, and you rejoice when there's something to rejoice about, both of them are better. They're both appointed by God, and they have their place. The house of mourning teaches the heart of the simple to put off wickedness. Page 7. We're called to humble ourselves in the sight of God, and we know that God will then lift us up. If we approach God and seek His presence and His gifting and humility as He's commanded, we can expect that we'll receive more gifts and we will have more freedom from sin. Verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge." There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge another? Okay, So this idea of speaking evil. Jesus says some pretty nasty things to some pretty nasty people. That was approved. So speaking evil doesn't mean calling people vipers. It's not inherently forbidden. Christ did it. Calling people whitewashed tombs. Calling people hypocrites. He did all that stuff. And he flipped over tables. So what is it that's being talked about? Speaking evil is this. Page 7.21. We should be very careful to avoid speaking against each other in unlawful ways. And we should be very careful to speak against each other when we have a duty to do so. If you don't speak truth that's negative about somebody when you have a duty to do so, that's also sin. But what's the general tendency? The general tendency of man is not to fail to speak against somebody. It happens sometimes, especially in tyrannical environments. The general tendency of man is to speak negatively, unjustly, at the wrong time. We should be, and social media is proof of that, we should be very careful to speak against each other in the right way. Matthew 18, Acts 15, James 3, 17 to 18. But the wisdom that is from above is pure, then peaceable. Right? Purity is concerned for first, then peaceableness. Gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we're called to speak against people only in a lawful way and to not speak against people... In unlawful ways. That's speaking evil. So then it says, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. How does that work? I wasn't talking against God's law. I was just talking against you. Because God's law tells you to not do it. And So when you go against it, you are speaking evil against the law. And here's the other thing. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about the need to discipline, and he also talks about the idea of not making judgments or being judged by men, but he's saying we should judge. So how do you make all those things fit together? Well, you judge only by what God has written in his word, only by what he's revealed in his word. So if you apply the law, you're not making the judgment. God's making the judgment. If you apply the law and you use the proper process for conflict resolution, it's the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how you do it. So that's how important it is to speak the truth rather than lies and to do it in the way that's commanded in Matthew 18. The the process, going to your brother, then bringing witnesses, then going to the court. And if it's a public matter, you you immediately start publicly, right? That's a part of the process too. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge. But guess what? There's one lawgiver, and he doesn't dress like you. He's able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge another? Right, judging, 22a, judging by any standard other than God's law revealed in the Scripture is a judgment not only against the brother, but also against God and his law. This is pride. This is Pride. Do the law, do not judge the law as though you have some standard above God or the law of God in scripture by which to judge. Our standard of doctrine in life is only scripture and it's all of scripture. It's sola scriptura et tota scriptura. This must align with the rest of scripture. It fits together. This is not something that says we can never judge anything and therefore we have to accept everything. The idea is you can't judge by your own standard. You can only judge by the standard of Christ. That's what this is. That's what humility looks like. That's what humility looks like. If the judgment is by God's law, with God's evidentiary standard, then the judgment is the judgment of Christ. It's not our own. That's true humility. We need to not be falsely humble fools with no discernment, and we need to not be proud, self-righteous judges who invent a law of our own hearts. Those are the two ditches. Judging the eternal state is also forbidden. It's God who saves and it's God who destroys. You don't know if somebody's elect or not. Somebody gets excommunicated, maybe they're reprobate, or maybe they're not. It's not saying that. We're saying we're calling the curse of God. We're calling Satan to scourge their flesh that their soul might be saved. If we would use church discipline in more churches in America... There would be more people who are scourged for their sins and might come to repentance at a sooner point than wasting their lives because of a failure of church discipline. We are called to judge rightly. We should not commit the sin of fond admiration where we say, well, you know, I'm going to treat this person just because I really like them and I have a history with them differently than the law order of Jesus Christ. Who are you? Jesus Christ said to do this. Your private judgment about this person and how you feel about them is going to take the place of the law order of Jesus Christ. What pride? You call it love or kindness? To not properly apply the ordinances of Christ. That is arrogance and pride and God will not stand for it. The failure to properly apply church discipline or to heed proper church discipline and to treat people according to it is Pride. Also, partial censuring. We don't even need a trial. This guy is just off, obviously wrong. No. You are obligated to follow due process. Even if this person is somebody you hate, you despise them. They're the worst. They're annoying. We are called to submit to the lawgiver. He judges the inward. And we can only judge the outward. He judges the end. We just judge the process. That's it. That's all we're given the authority to do. We leave the end to God. And the effect of the process. We only avoid acting as judges and lawgivers if we judge by the process that God has given, using the law that God has given, without addition and without subtraction. So it moves from this arrogance in judgment... And it goes to arrogance about power to get stuff done. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, let us go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, We shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Right? Saying I'm gonna do this or that, it's hilarious, right? Because God could just kill you right now. I give enough sermons long enough at some point, like when I do that, somebody's gonna die right then? It's gonna be really bad. The idea that you don't know if you're gonna live for the next five seconds is a humbling thought. Your life's a vapor. Your life is a vapor. Earlier on in James one, the richer compared to grass that get withered out by the sun. Grass and vapor. Grass and vapor. Sounds like a smoke shop. But the grass and vapor, that gets you a pretty low view of being rich and powerful. That's it. That's all you got. Your grass and vapor. You're gonna wither away when the sun changes. You're gonna blow away with the wind. You will not leave a lasting impact unless the Lord establishes the work of your hands. So if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. It was common in Protestant culture previously to say God willing, Lord willing, DV, which is you know, Latin for God willing. This is a short version of that. I would encourage you to bring that back. Sometimes people feel like it's legalism to say that, or they feel like it's something that's you know some sort of a Uh, a thing that's belittling or taking God's name in vain, it's not taking God's name in vain. It's taking your own name in vain if you say, I can do this thing, and I'm going to make it happen. Acknowledging the sovereignty of God as a reminder, is a blessing to yourself and to everybody around you. When you say it, if anybody gets annoyed, that's their problem, and they needed to hear it. They hear you say God willing, and they're frustrated with it, great. God will not be successfully resisted. So, the use of the phrase God willing is an act of humility. Now, your life's a vapor. It appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away. So what we need to do is to figure out what are the things we should actually focus on, and we should figure out the fact that we need to do good works all the time. There's too much to do. There's too many good works to do. We don't have time for anything else. Every moment should be filled with that. So verse 17 says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin, right? Your your life's a vapor. You got a duty that comes on your radar, do it. Do it right away. Like you're you're a vapor. You know to do sin, you don't do it, it's sin because you've neglected something that you might die, and then who's gonna do it? We should speak humbly, not proudly. And we should have the limiter of acknowledging God. That's a way of avoiding the neglect. Of a duty of acknowledging God. You know, the first commandment requires us, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. Page 9. It requires us to know and to acknowledge God. Acknowledging of God is a good work. Acknowledging of God. We need to transform language and have Christian culture. Things like greetings, things like the way you part ways. Bless each other when you see each other, bless each other when you part bid God speed as opposed to goodbye. Like, 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 Do things to intentionally make your language weird. Be Christian in your language. Take words and make people stop and think. Do things that make it so that you are acknowledging God with your language, like saying, God willing. Or, if the Lord wills. We acknowledge God with our tongues. That's what we're called to do. Now, Five, one, bottom of page 9. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and your corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. So this call to the rich to weep and howl, you know, the rich are trying to have money to enjoy, and instead they're going to bring misery upon themselves if they misuse that money. This is a call to humility rather than pride. And if you heard an oracle of God calling woe upon you, do you think that might encourage you to fast and repent? This is what he's advised above as means for humility. If you get a lot of any gifts, there's a tendency to become proud. And we tend to think we got it by our own power. i got a lot of wisdom. I must be smart. i got a lot of money. I must work real hard. I've got a lot of strengths because I'm working out. The gym's over there. You know, so that right there. You have this tendency to think that the gifts that you have are by your own power. You don't have them by your own power. The Lord gives pounds and he takes pounds away. The Lord gives propositions and he takes propositions away. The Lord causes all of the blessings that we have. Every dollar he gives he can take away. Happened to Job real quick. It is the work of God to give every blessing that we have. We don't have the power to make money by our own hand. We don't have the power to get strength by our own hand. We don't have the power to get wisdom by our own hand. All of these things are the gift of God. Now, acknowledging God and acknowledging your brother is how you act humbly. Your brother is made in the image of God. And so, if you do justly, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God, you're going to treat each other very differently. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. How does that happen? Do clothes tend to become moth-eaten if you're wearing them regularly, or do they get moth-eating when they're sitting in some place for a long time? Hoard it up. Do riches start to corrode when they're just when they're being, when they're in, uh, when they're being passed around, when they're in circulation, do they get corroded? No. There, there's a wearing that occurs when it just sits there is where the corrosion happens. Hoarding, not wealth, is the forbidden thing. Hoarding, not wealth, is the forbidden thing. We are to use money and power and wisdom, and strength for good works. Your gold and silver are corroded. You're sitting around, just collecting rust. You have heaped up, heaped up, this, you know, putting it up in barns, treasure in the last days. Why the last days? What's that about? Does this sound like you've heaped up treasure in the last days, and therefore Jesus was supposed to come a long time ago? right? Dispensationalists would read this and have to find a way of talking about the last days being this whole time period, except in the sense that it's really only a small period of time. But also, also, we need to realize that Jesus is coming at any moment. This is the, the way you hear about it in broader evangelicalism. Come at any moment. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen before Jesus comes back. The earth is not anywhere close to what it's prophesied about. It's going to be a while. So if that's the case, what are the last days? The last days there are the last days of the old covenant. They've received the new covenant, and they're wasting their wealth in the new covenant. This is a time when new gifts, new power have been given to the church and their situation is better than the situation of any Old Testament saint and they are letting their wealth sit there rather than blessing their brothers or doing some good work with it. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. You have a stronger position right now than John the Baptist did. You have a more blessed condition in the New Covenant than John the Baptist did. He was the greatest man born among women, and the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Look at John the Baptist. Look at what he did. You have a stronger position for ministry than he had. Everything you have, every piece of property you have, all the gifting you have, is power from God to do good work. And you're in a position, a strategic position, with more leverage than John the Baptist had. And he caused kings to quake. He caused so much trouble for a king that he had to throw him in prison. The rotting or the rusting, the moth-eaten riches, these are things that should have been invested, generously given, tithed, used in hospitality, any other good work, don't sit on your riches. Put your riches to work. So here's what Jesus said in Matthew 619 19-21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Value God more than money, and if you do that, you'll risk your money. You'll put it to work. And when you put it to work, it's going to guarantee for you treasure that won't corrode, won't be eaten by moths, can't be lost. You lend to the Lord, it's a sure thing, and he pays great interest. Invest in doing what God has commanded you to do. The sitting idle riches will testify against the rich for their failure to use their power well. To whom much is given, much is expected. In the last days of the Old Covenant are the days when the New Covenant has been given. Wealth plus New Covenant blessings of gifts and outward administration of the New Covenant... Mean that so much good can be done with dollars. It's squandered by keeping the money sitting idle. Now, Matthew 6:22 to 34 talks about this in more detail. I encourage you to go study it. Okay, I've got it there for you at the bottom of the page. But I want to give you one hint: the lamp of the body is the eye. The idea here is what you value is what you're putting your eye on. You're, you're valuing it, and if you value the wrong thing, your eye is darkness. And if the thing you value, the thing the focus of your mind is on is darkness, the whole body will be filled with darkness. It will manifest works of wickedness. If you value God, what's going to happen is the whole body is going to be filled with light and you're going to do altars of good work. Now that rest of it will make a lot more sense as you read through that. So I encourage you to read through that. Consider the two masters in light of that, God or money, and the idea of not being anxious. This text is the text that made me a Calvinist. I was sitting in a car, anxious, and the Lord brought this text to mind. And I went, God controls everything. That was the effect of the Lord bringing this to mind. So this is a special text to me. Now, Luke 12 has this classic text about the guy who is rich and he tears down his barns to get new barns. Everybody goes, see, so don't try to get rich. No, don't try to hoard stuff. The Proverbs say it's a blessing when you sell the grain rather than hoarding it. The selling of it is selling it to get profit. You end up with more stuff. Oh no, more curse. Riches are bad. I got more riches because I sold the stuff. Ah, what do I do? Right? That's the problem. No, it's not that. It's the failure to put it to good work. Don't lay up the treasure for yourself. Be rich toward God. Do what God commands with wealth. Now, verse 4. Indeed, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. So one of the things that's happening here is the rich are not paying their wages. They're not paying their bills on time. They're not paying laborers. Hiring laborers to mow fields, this is not, you know, paying somebody to, like, mow your lawn. This is paying somebody to harvest. So when you pay somebody to harvest, you typically pay them less than what you expect to bring in okay the problem was not hiring people to harvest and make a profit the problem was not paying the wages that was a failure they hoarded it and that's a type of theft and that brings curse so we treat our brothers properly by applying the law and not being proud and treating them as though they are also the image of god Indeed, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. Just you know, There's other language in the Bible that talks about blood crying out when you murder somebody. Okay, that's a linguistic tie. The idea of a curse. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. They intentionally use the word Sabaoth. That's a, that's a Hebrew word that means host, right? So that's a transliteration into Greek. And what it's doing is reminding us that God is powerful, He's a God with armies. So they hear the cry. God hears the cry. He has armies. He's going to enforce the contract. You failed to pay. He's going to enforce the contract. And he's the Lord of hosts. So that should cause us to be humble rather than proud and thinking that we can abuse people because they are weaker than us. And so we should use our power to bless rather than curse. Remember that earlier on? The idea of how the mouth shouldn't bless and curse? Well, here now is the cursing that's just. These are curses that God is going to hear. The psalmist and Proverbs both talk about don't do something wrong against somebody because it might result in them cursing you and then it might be them cursing you rightly and that curse might land. That's happening here. So that's the danger. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That idea, the the fattening of the heart, refers back to the hard heart. And the idea of the circumcision of the heart is the removal of the fat, the removal to show the living element of the heart. So the circumcision of the heart. The idea here is you're giving evidence that you're not converted. You're withholding wages. You're giving evidence that you're not converted. So what he's saying is, you're judging people by a made up law well if we judge you by the law of Christ guess what we're pretty close to having to excommunicate you that's the idea you're giving evidence of not being a believer and that heart is being fattened as in a day of slaughter it's being fattened like it's being prepared to be destroyed so have you been raised up rich supposedly Christian for the purpose of being destroyed are you reprobate that's the call In verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. The partiality that was talked about earlier towards the rich, the murdering of the just, this might be a reference to the murdering of the prophets by Jews earlier, but it also might be a reference to the idea that the wages, when you steal wages, you are doing something that could result in the death of a wage earner or it could result in the death of their children or their wife or whoever they're responsible to care for. And so there's a way in which you're tending toward murder as you steal property from people. It was a case out in Arizona. There was a long time where uh, we had a law that was, if a man is out away from a town and you steal his horse, that it was a capital crime, because the idea was by stealing the horse, you were endangering his life because he might not be able to get back to water in time before dying. And so that was a capital crime in Arizona for a long period of time. So that idea that there are some type of property-stealing acts that can be murder. The idea he doesn't resist you, that's an appeal back. You can resist the devil and he'll flee. Don't resist God. God is more powerful than you. He's the Lord of hosts. You cannot resist him. He will accomplish all his purpose. We We are called to be humble and to submit to God and to realize that if we do not submit to God, he will bring us low. And if we do submit to God, he will raise us up. He will exalt us in the earth and cause us to ride the high places. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Marsh. First, the question is, has the Sabbath always been a feast day? How does that relate to the idea of of fasting and uh, Sabbaths overall? Um, right so um, so first um, the Sabbath has not always been a feast day there were feast days in the old covenant we don't have feast days now except for the Sabbath so there's a rolling of the feast days into the Sabbath Um, so avoiding fasting on the feast days uh, would have been a requirement in the old covenant In the new covenant, um, in the new covenant, you obviously, if you have a weekly administration of the Lord's Supper, and you are called to attend and called to the sacraments, you could not keep a fast longer than a week. And the idea of a fast, um, the Old Testament has fasting more associated with it um, than the New Testament. There's a required fast, for example, in the Old Testament. Um, so feasting in the New Testament is more happenstantial and event oriented um, and has to at least be broken up by the feast that is the Lord's Supper Um, and we have that as an ordinance from God on some sort of a frequency and so um, yeah what do you think of that okay thank you any other comments questions, questions Mr. Boyston thank you for your zealesty um, question about the cross. Is this, because people worship Christ through the cross? I would assume, does this violate the second commandment? Yeah, if you turn a cross into a microphone to God, you're worshiping God by it or through it, which is one of the reasons why Puritans are very careful to avoid crosses in assembly halls is to avoid the general human tendency to turn things into objects through which we seek to approach God. So God previously required the use of the temple and he commanded people to pray toward the temple. So that was a religious act that at one point he commanded the use of the temple and the direction of the temple as a thing for that. And now we don't have that. That's removed. And so to add it in would be to Judaize or to make it some other object would just be human idolatry by plain invention. So we should not use any object as a microphone to God. It is idolatry.